Hey Icon, good to be with you here this week. We are in week four of our Father Abraham series. And uh, I, I love this story in particular, not just because it's a really important story for kind of the life of Israel and the story of the Bible, uh, but because I think it really illustrates well the difference between the way children think and the way adults think, or maybe the way immature people think and the way mature people think. So um, I wanna jump right in, I wanna read the passage, and then we're gonna kind of zoom out and look at some of what we can learn from this story. It's gonna be a, a very familiar story for many of you. Genesis chapter 15, join me there, we'll start in verse one. It says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And these things, if you remember from last week, is God, uh, Abram rescuing Lot at the hand of God, God handing over Abram's enemies to his hand so he could rescue his nephew Lot. It says, after these things, God came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I love saying the word Girgashites, one of my absolute favorite words to say. Uh, Genesis 15 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament because in it is what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant, right? That God formally covenants with Abraham saying, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will produce a great nation through you. 
Now, this chapter, many books have been written on this chapter. Millions of sermons have been preached on this chapter. We actually just uh, were here in Genesis 15 in our Roman series because Paul um, calls back to this moment often as proof of the gospel, the gospel of grace, that it is by faith that even Abraham was made righteous before God, before the law was even given. Okay, and so rather than getting into the details of the Abrahamic covenant, though we will talk about this whole passage, um, I want us to zoom out and do kind of what we've been doing through this whole series and take some kind of practical life lessons from the way in which God and Abram interact rather than kind of getting into the details of the covenant. So this week, I read a quote from John Maynard Keyes, the famous economist, predicting that his grandchildren would work 15-hour work weeks. 15-hour work weeks. That was his prediction. That technology would advance in such a way that it would allow us to have lives of leisure, basically, where instead of working 40, 50, 60, 100 hours, as many did at the end of the 19th century, that he predicted technology would allow us to work 15-hour weeks. Now, his grandchildren that he predicted would be doing that would be very old people right now, and this is not at all the case. In fact, on average, we work almost triple what Keyes predicted. In fact, I work about 50 hours a week and often feel like a slacker in this city, right? We are a working city. So why is it that Keyes' prediction didn't come true? Because the truth is, we have more technology and more access to things that will do other things for us. Things that we used to have to do manually are now automated, and yet it has not given us the margin that, in fact, not just keys, but so many predicted that, that technology would give us. And it just hasn't happened, and I wonder why. Well, NPR did an interview with several of Keyes' grandchildren, one of whom uh, was a professor and another who was a Harvard economist, and they kind of posed a question to them. And the economist said this, one of the things that Keyes underestimated was the human ability to compete, the human drive to consume and to win. That when we get an hour freed up to us by technology, we quickly fill that hour with more productivity. And so many in the early 20th century that predicted these big changes really underestimated humans' uh, uh, ability to overwork and try to overproduce. And the, the temptation is constant, right? There's this constant temptation to compete, to take advantage of every opportunity that's presented to us, to never let up, to produce at all costs, and to do it now. There is this, this immediacy, this urgency that is all around us that we've got to do all the things now. But I wonder if this is the right perspective that we should have. In fact, I wonder sometimes, how many times, how often do you think about the future? And I mean, not just 10 years into the future, but say 50 years into the future or 100 years into the future. And think about the impact that your life today might have on 100 years into the future. I'll admit, I like thinking about the future. I'm going to talk about that more in a little bit. But I never think 100 years into the future. Jordan Peterson wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life, and in it, he juxtaposes the ideas of expedience and meaning. 
experience and meaning. And one of his chapters says, pursue things that are meaningful, not what is expedient. And in it, he says this, it's a longer quote, but I think it's really good. He says this, expedience is the following of blind impulse. It's short-term gain. It's narrow and selfish. It lies to get, to get its way. It takes nothing into account. It's immature and irresponsible. Meaning is its mature replacement. Meaning emerges when impulses are regulated, organized, and unified. Meaning trumps expedience. Meaning gratifies all impulses now and forever. Expedience, that's hiding all the skeletons in the closet. That's covering the blood you just spilled with a carpet. That's avoiding responsibility. It's cowardly and shallow and wrong. He says it's wrong because mere expedience multiplied by many repetitions produces the character of a demon. It's wrong because expedience merely transfers the curse on your head to someone else or to your future self in a manner that will make your future and the future generally worse instead of better. And, and he says this one last line. In fact, he repeats it in the book. He says, to have meaning in your life is better than to have what you want because you may neither know what you want nor what you truly need. And I think that's an interesting way to frame it, that we can choose to pursue what is expedient, what is right in front of us, what seems important, what seems right, what seems to be kind of urgent and expedient, right? what's right in front of us, or we can think about things that are long-term. And often things that are meaningful are long-term. Things that are meaningful require delayed gratification. It requires us to say no today for a greater yes tomorrow. And we're gonna see some of that here in this story of Abraham. In fact, we've already seen it, how his primary concern with God is that he doesn't have an heir. Right? Like he, he doesn't have any children. He doesn't understand how the future can even exist if he doesn't have children, let alone the promises that God has made to him. So it's interesting to me the degree to which Abraham is concerned about the future compared to how much we're concerned about the future. I mean, we think about the future, but we think about it, you know, right now we're thinking a lot about what the next four years might hold given the presidential election. We, we think in the near term, and I wonder what it would look like for us to think about things that are meaningful in the long term. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna look at three quick lessons from Abraham's life and his response, and then four reasons why from God's response and God's action. And I know that's seven points, and so we should probably get started. Number one, Abraham is impatient. Go back to verses two and three. Abram says to God, God comes to him in a vision, right? And, and says, this is my promise and I'm with you. I'm your shield and there'll be this great reward. And Abram responds saying, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I mean, that guy is the worst, right? Like I've never met him, but he sounds terrible, right? He, he goes on, he says, listen, I don't, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Right? So this actually isn't about Eliezer. He might be a great guy. Probably not, but might be. 
right? The, the bigger issue is this. He doesn't have any kids. He's getting old. Remember, Genesis 12, when God first comes to Abram, he's 75 years old. He is an old dude, right? And so when old people get old, they need people to care for them. And when you don't have children, you're kind of in a bad spot, especially in the ancient Near East, because there was not retirement homes or you, know, you couldn't just pay somebody, right? So he needed a child. And so what's probably happened here is that they have adopted this kid, Eliezer, from Damascus, who is probably the, uh, either uh, someone who was a servant in their household or maybe the child of a servant in their household. They adopted him as their own so that he would care for him, right? So this is less about Abram really caring about the promises of God being carried out, carried out and way more about him wanting to be cared for when he gets old. But, but, there's, but there's something more important that I want us to pay attention to. Just by doing this, right? Like Abraham's taken steps to kind of control the situation, take things into his own hands, right? Which implies that he is not altogether sure that God's going to come through on this promise, right? That, that's, that's what his actions imply here. And in fact, it's, it's worse that, that we're seeing the arrogance and the idolatry of Abraham come out arrogance in the sense that he goes, I can control the future. God has, of course, promised these things to me, but he doesn't, I don't see him coming through on the timeline that I had in mind, and I'm getting a little impatient, so I'm going to solve my own problem, or at least kind of have a back pocket solution in case God doesn't come through, so he signs the adoption papers for Eliezer of Damascus, right? It's fairly arrogant of Abraham to kind of usurp God's position. But I would say worse than that, it's also revealed Abraham's idolatry, right? And we talk about idolatry a lot. It's a big uh, common Bible term. But one of the ways in which Pastor Tim Keller has talked about it that's been super helpful for me is that uh, idols uh, function as our functional savior. They work like a functional savior to save us from our personal hell. Okay, so this, our, our personal hell is different for each and every one of us, right? It doesn't have to be kind of the hell, capital H hell, place where we go, where we die without God. That There are all kinds of little hells that we deal with in our day-to-day -day life, right? This is the reality of the world is that we're surrounded by suffering. We're surrounded by little hells all the time. And so in order to avoid those little hells, and for, for Abraham and Sarah, their little hell was the barrenness of Sarah, was the fact that she could not have children, and they didn't have any children. There was no heir to be had, and that was like a little hell for them. And so Abraham reached for the functional savior of Eliezer of Damascus to solve this problem. They go, okay, I've got a hell, I need a savior, here's what it is. For you, might be something totally different, right? Some future reality that you just can't see playing out the way God would desire it for you. And so instead of being patient and, and kind of aiming at believing in what God has for you, then you kind of shortcut the situation and go, I can't have this. Whether it is singleness that you don't want to deal with, a marriage that you don't want to deal with, some financial trouble, some sort of security, some sort of job, some sort of identity, some sort of something, that you go, man, this reality, if I can't escape this, this it might as well be hell for me. 
And so if, if loneliness and singleness is your thing, you may reach for another person to be your functional savior to actually solve that personal hell. Now, you may or may not love them. That's kind of beside the point. They're solving a problem for you. In other words, you're using them. Okay? And now, some of you are on the flip side of that. You're in marriages where you're deeply unhappy and unsatisfied. And so you're reaching for escape to kind of save you from that personal hell. This is what we see with Abraham. Instead of being patient, instead of trusting the promises of God, he has reached for a lesser version of what God has promised. He's impatient about what he can't control. And so he has settled for a reality that he can secure. It's a lesser version of it, right? Rather than us pursuing something that's meaningful and long-term, rather than Abraham pursuing what is meaningful and long-term, trusting in the promise of God, he pursues what is expedient and aims below heaven at something less than paradise, at something less than God's ideal, at something less than what God has promised, and has kind of settled for that, right? So we see here Abraham's impatience. Because the future is outside of his control and he desperately wants to grasp it. So instead of aiming for heaven or aiming at God's ideal, he aims at something less. Number two, Abraham's also fearful. Verse eight, Abraham said to God, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right? So this is interesting. Um, God's promised back in, in chapter 12, God promised. He reiterates his promise again. He reiterates his promise again. He's faithful to Abraham, even when Abraham kind of pitched Sarah to Pharaoh and to Abimelech. God stays faithful. He says again at the beginning of, of Genesis 15, hey, I'm with you. I'll be your shield. You have a great reward coming. Again, at the end in verse 5, look toward the stars. That's going to be your family. And Abraham goes, cool, cool, cool. Um, how do I know? Like, how, how can I actually know that this is true? I mean, I, I want to believe, and I believe, but how can I know? I want certainty here, right? There, there, there's a decent amount of uncertainty that we feel uh, about the future because we can't predict it. We don't know it. And Abram wants to know. He doesn't just want to believe. He doesn't want to just take God's word for it. He wants to know. And I'll just say this, you can't know. You want to know, I want to know, I am all about the future, I want to know, but I can't and neither can you. And yet we go above and beyond, we seek and seek and seek and try and try and try to know what the future holds and to take out of the future any uncertainty, any question mark, any gray area because we want to control. We're afraid of what we do not know. But see, knowing, God knows this about us, knowing leads to self-sufficiency. If I think that I know something, I will never ask for help because I know. If I know what the future holds, I will never seek God's hand or face because I know. If I think I know how to get out of a situation, I will never pray because I know. Knowing breeds self-sufficiency. 
Uncertainty, on the other hand, gives us a choice. The uncertainty about life, the uncertainty about our future gives us two choices. One, it can produce anxiety if we have a, a, a self-focus in it that we see the world as, as kind of we're at the center of it and we are sovereign over it and it's just up to us and we're navigating the world on our own. So uncertainty can produce anxiety, which is kind of what drives many of us to, to clear our lives of uncertainty. But it can also produce, if we allow it, it can produce dependence. It can produce dependence. Faithful, hopeful, trusting dependence. So when we are faced with a situation that we do not know what to do, there is uncertainty in our future, we have received a diagnosis, or we've received news, or we've received a change, there's something that's happened that's disrupted our life, and it's inevitable because life is suffering. Life, just the very act of being, uh, is constant suffering. That is reality. And so we are either just coming out of a moment of suffering, or we are in a moment of suffering, or I'm sorry to say we're about to enter a moment of suffering. So this is always kind of ever present around us and it constantly gives us a choice to either act and think and feel as if it's all up to us, which just produces anxiety because deep down we know we can't handle it, or it can produce dependence. We can immediately go, I need help. I can't do it. I can't manage this on my own. I need something or someone bigger than me, stronger than me, more capable than me to do this. We all want to manage the suffering of life, but we can't. Abraham arrogantly tried to control his world, arrogantly tries to know what the future holds. The most important thing for us to do in the midst of suffering, in the midst of uncertainty, is to stay humble. And to remember that we are, that our greatest, most powerful posture is that of dependence. In fact, it reminds me of this great story in Mark chapter 9. Where this father comes to Jesus because his child is sick. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And, and I love this response of Jesus because I, 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 wanna, I just want to believe that this was his tone of voice. It says, Jesus said to him, if you can. The father said, if you can do anything, have compassion. Jesus goes, uh, I'm sorry, if? Do, why are you coming to me if your question is if? You, you run through this crowd, part the crowd, show up at my feet and go, hey, if you can do anything. I mean, is this just like a, a lottery ticket, a crapshoot? Just might as well try the famous guy to see if that guy can do anything. Jesus goes, if you can? He goes, all things are possible. For those who believe. Immediately the father cried out the most honest prayer that any of us can pray. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the most honest prayer we can pray. I believe. Help my unbelief. This is the best we can do. Right? Like that's the best we can do because we never believe all the way. Even in our best moments, we don't believe all the way. 
right? We want to believe, we believe a little, we believe in this general direction, but we don't believe all the way. We're always hedging. We always got an Eliezer of Damascus in our back pocket. We've always got a plan B. So I, I believe, help me in my unbelief is the most honest prayer we can pray. And there's a sense in which that's exactly what Abraham's doing here because this verse eight comes after verse six, go figure, where, where he says that, that Abram believed God. So we're, we're on the backside of Abram professing his faith. And still, after it says Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, literally the next thing out of Abram's mouth is, so how can I know? Because I believe, but how is it that I can know? Right? So in this moment of great humility where Abram's able to go, okay, I trust you, God, I believe, he immediately tries to gain even more clarity and more kind of less gray, more black and white. How can I know? So not only in order to be able to kind of think about what is meaningful and pursue what is meaningful and long-term and multi-generational the way Abram does here, we not only need to aim at heaven and don't settle for anything less, but we got to stay humble, remembering that it is God who secures the future, not us. Third thing, Abram in this moment is not just insecure, not just fearful, and not just impatient and all those things. He is also faithful, right? Like he, he does have faith. And, 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 I, and I think we ought to be encouraged by this because this is the amount, I mean, right? Like we see his fear, we see his impatience, and there is some faith in it. And for God, that's enough, right? So in verse six, says, he, Abram, believed the Lord and God, he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. The only currency in the kingdom of God is faith. That's it. There's nothing else. It's not obedience. It's not love. I mean, these things are all good, but the, the currency that gets you anywhere with God is purely faith. Where God comes to Abram and goes, hey, I'm going to be your shield. I've got a great reward. Abram goes, cool, 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 but um, I don't have any kids yet, and this Eliezer guy's hanging around, but I I'm really hoping you're not talking about him. And God goes, hey, all the stars in the sky, I got you, I got you, I got you. Everyone goes, okay, cool. Cool, I trust you. I trust you. And God goes, righteousness. That's all I need. Just, just trust me. Trust that, that, that I got you. Trust that I got your back. Trust that I can do it. Trust that I'm stronger than you. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust that I got a plan. Just trust me. Just walk with me. That's all, that's all I'm asking. And God goes, that, that's, that's it. And you can be righteous. Trusting in God is the currency of the kingdom of God, and it is our only good option. Right? So we, we want to think long term. We want to think about what is meaningful. Aim at heaven. We want to stay humble and trust that God is, it, it has got it, and, and, and I can't control it even if I wanted to. And God's the only one powerful enough to do it. But there's also like this day to day to day kind of, I got to just manage today. What do I do today? I got to deal with today. So I want to aim at heaven. I want to trust God. But what do I do today? And, and the reality is that what Abram did in this moment where he goes, God, I don't know. And God goes, I got you. He goes, okay. That's what we can do today. That moment. Just that moment of going, hey, I want to be honest, God. I'm kind of freaking out here. God goes, I got you. He goes, okay. If we just do that every day, 
just deal with that every day. Just go, okay, God, I trust you. I'm kind of freaking out, but I trust you. God goes, great, righteousness. Let's go to the next day. Um, in in uh, 12 Rules uh, for Life, uh, Jordan Peterson says it this way. He says, aim for paradise and concentrate on today. Right? Aim for paradise, concentrate on today. Have the end in mind that you're, that you're kind of moving towards, rowing the boat towards of your life, that you are kind of arcing your life towards it, and then deal with today. Concentrate on the next right decision that you have to make. I, I, I mentioned this before, but I'm like an obsessive, future-oriented person. In fact, Emily and I, my wife and I just got in an argument about this yesterday because I told her something that was in my 10-year plan and it was kind of crazy. And she goes, wait, you have a 10-year plan? Why have you never talked to me about your 10-year plan? I'm like, I got a lot of 10-year plans, right? Like there's a lot that's kind of running around in my head. I am constantly living in the future. And the, the lie that I often believe is I can make the future happen. Right? Like I, I have a fundamental belief that if I set my sights on something, I can get it done. Okay? So I, I read this, this line from Jordan Peterson, Aim for Paradise and Concentrate on Today. I go, yeah, I've got an idea of what I think paradise is, and then I need to focus on what's happening today. Right? In fact, even better than Jordan Peterson, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Again, aim at heaven, deal with today. Aim at heaven, aim at God's preferred future, aim at what God has called you to and make an impact today. Even better than Jordan Pierce, even better than C.S. Lewis, Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus goes, listen, don't, don't freak out. Don't freak out about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, or where you're going to go, or what, what your job's going to be, or who you're going to marry, or whatever. Don't worry. Don't worry. Gentiles freak out about that stuff. And, and by that, he just simply means people who don't believe in God freak out about that stuff because if there is no God, it's all up to them. And then they probably should freak out, honestly. If it's up to you, freak, okay? But for us, we know it's not. We know it's not up to us. He says, your heavenly father knows you need all this stuff. You think, you think he doesn't know? He goes, he, he provides for everybody. He's going to provide for you. Don't be anxious, but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and the needs of the day will be added to you. One of the best pieces of advice I got from a mentor of mine some years ago is, instead of worrying about the future, just do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Make sure that you're aimed at God's righteousness, at God's kingdom, at the future, and then that pathway, you just got to do the next right thing. You just got to take the next right step. Aim at heaven, but choose to trust God today. Right? Which is much easier said than done. So how can we avoid the trap of immediacy 
without obsessing about the future? How can we aim at heaven, stay humble, and deal with today? Four things. We'll do this really quickly. One, remember God's character. This, this passage started, if you remember, in verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Right? And then Abram kind of freaks out. God comes back in verse 5 and says, Come on, Abram. How are you freaking out again? I've told you this so many times. Don't you have any faith? No. That's not what he says. Right? God's provided and rescued and protected and promised Abraham freaks out, and how does God respond? He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Remember God's character. Remember that he is for you, as we've talked about so many times during this series. That he knows how fragile and impatient we are. That he begins this story by reassuring Abram that when Abram freaks out, God doesn't get mad. He just reassures Abram again. And then after Abram trusts him and then goes, yeah, but, yeah, but how could I know? Right? Like he makes a covenant with Abram. God is the leader. He's the pastor. He's the father. He's the king. He's the boss. He's the coach that you've always wanted. He's for you. He's never going to fail you. He's never going to walk out on you. He's never going to bench you. He wants you to succeed. And if we can remember that, that that's the, the, the core of God's character, that then, then maybe we can begin to entrust our future to him. Maybe, maybe then we can begin to entrust what is unknown to he that knows. Number two, remember God's past. In verse seven, God reminds him saying, I am the Lord who brought you up out of uh, Ur from, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is, this is a theme of God's. He does this over and over and over. In fact, before the Ten Commandments in Exodus, he says, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's like God has to continue to remind us, remember who I am, remember what I've done. Right? This is, I'm not new to this game. This isn't the first time we've talked. This isn't the first time I've done anything for you. I know you're concerned about the future, but maybe instead of being concerned about the future, you should remember the past because past behavior is a pretty good predictor of future behavior. Who I was then is who I am now. It's who I will be. God reminds us over and over and over. Don't forget, I've always provided for you. I've always been there for you. I've always taken care of you and I will continue to do so into the future, right? So we remember God's character, but we also remember God's past. Number three, we remember God's promise, right? We've got this weird kind of ritual thing that God and Abram do in verses 9 through 11 and verses 17 through 18, where he cuts these animals in half 
And then God puts Abram into this deep sleep. And then he sees this smoking fire pot and a torch floating through the animals. I mean, it's super weird, right? Like it's the part of Genesis 15 that we're like, and then they made a covenant and it was kind of whatever. And so, right, like I, I want us to understand what this is because there's a couple of cool things in this, in this moment that I want us to get. One is that this was a very common kind of ancient Near Eastern uh, covenantal ritual. Okay. Wasn't unique to Abraham. Wasn't unique to God. This is something the Hittites and the Girgashites and all those dudes were doing, right? Like this was common. And I, and I love that. And this is something God does over and over that sometimes we miss when we don't understand some of the cultural stuff behind the Bible, that God enters in to, to Abram's world rather than saying, Abram, you come up to my tall mountain or you come up to my heavenly heavens. Like, God comes down into Abram's world again to reassure him, again to love him by sending him something and doing something that would have been very familiar to Abram. So he cuts these animals, puts them in half, and then what's interesting is God, in the form of the flaming smoking pot thing and the torch, it is God who passes through the animals, not Abram. What normally would have happened is that both, the, both parties, both God and Abram, but in, a, in another covenant, both parties would walk through together and basically say, okay, if either one of us breaks this covenant, let us die. Right? In fact, Tremper Longman, who's an Old Testament scholar, describes it this way. He says, God undertakes a ritual that in essence says to Abram, if I do not keep my promise, may I, God, become like these animals. Of course, God cannot die, but that is precisely the point. He cannot lie either. He will certainly keep his promise. So God enters into Abram's world and makes a, a vow, a one-sided vow, right? This isn't, okay, Abram, if you hold up your end, I'll hold up mine. But if you hold up your end, then, or if you break your end, then it's all off. No. He goes, you cut the animals and then go to sleep. And then I will covenant to be your God no matter what foolishness may come. And there's a lot of foolishness to come. This is God making and keeping promises. Number four, remember God's sovereignty. Verses 13 to 16 are a prophecy about, uh, about the future of Israel, that they will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. It's going to be a long time before his people inhabit this land and take the promised land, right? There, there's got to be some sense here where Abram's like, hey, it's been a couple years, God. Where's, where's my family? We can't have a multitude if I don't have one, right? Like one would be a great start. And God goes, okay, here's the deal. I promised you this great family, this great nation, more people than the stars in the sky, right? All that. It's going to be about 400 years. And Abram's like, oh, okay, years, not like days, minutes, I don't know, like God's timeline super different than our timeline. God's sovereignty over the universe is typified in this statement that God goes, I'm going to keep my promise. I know what's going to happen 400 years from now, man. Like you, th you think the fact that it's been a couple months since, uh, you know, since I made that promise and Sarah hasn't gotten pregnant yet, you're, you're all freaked out and you think I might not know what I'm doing. Like I I've got the next 400 years planned, bro. Like your, your people are going to multiply and then they're going to get enslaved and then I'm going to rescue them from their slavery because, and I love this line, he goes, the, the sin, the iniquity in verse 16 
Uh, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is God's grace for this godless people, the Amorites, where he's looking down going, eventually it's going to get real bad. But it's not there yet. So the, it, the judgment upon them is not justified yet, but it will be, I promise. I can see where this is all headed. And he goes, you're going to come back and you're going to defeat the Amorites because they're going to deserve it. God's sovereign over history. In fact, I, I read this great quote from John Piper uh, last week saying, say, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. I love that. That God is at any given time doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them, right? So when we ask each other, what's God doing in your life? You're, I just feel like God's going like, well, that's your list, huh? Those two things? Huh, okay, cool. Uh, let's see if you can notice any more, right? Like the God's constantly at work in human history, weaving this tapestry together of all of our lives and all of what's happening together in his will. Like he knows what's going to happen 400 years from now. He's got it. And so if we can remember God's character and remember God's past and remember God's promises and remember God's sovereignty, right? Like he's got a handle on it. Let him be. I see so much fear in the world right now. On, on, on all sides, every, every bit, inside the church and outside the church. And I would just say like, for those who are outside the church, outside of God, yeah, there's every reason to be fearful. If we're all left to our own devices, we're in big trouble. But man, not so for Christians. If you believe in the God of the Bible, what is there to be afraid of? Is there anything that scares God? Is there anything that, that he looks out in the future and is like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to figure that one out, but we'll, we'll see. Jesus got any ideas? Right? Like, no. He's got it. So for us as Christians, there, there really ought to be no fear. Because there's literally nothing that could take place now or in November or next year or whatever that can ever overwhelm God. Elections are, are just a blip on God's radar. We're, he's thinking 400 years out, and I'll be honest, I hope we're not around 400 years from now. I mean, I definitely won't be, but uh, like the world, I hope Jesus comes back. But man, he's got this thing. Okay? So... Nowhere is this more evident, this whole idea of pursuing what is meaningful and long-term over what is expedient. Nowhere is this more obvious or apparent than on the cross. Jesus stared down the immediacy of torture, the immediacy of his own physical death, the immediate pain of being separated from the Father by our sin. He faced all of that down in pursuit of a greater good, something more deeply meaningful, something that, that transcended all of this, this short-term pain, this short-term sacrifice, this short-term uncertainty for a long-term good. He aimed at heaven and yet dealt with today. And he stayed humble, crying out to the Father in the garden, saying, man, if there is any other, any other way, any other way, and yet not my will, but yours be done. That this is the model that sacrifice in the immediate can produce incredible good in the long term. So, aim at heaven. 
Aim at God's ideal, what God has promised, what God has called us to, and do not accept any substitutes. Do not put an Eliezer of Damascus plan B in your back pocket. Aim at God's call, but deal with today. Deal with the reality of taking the next step. Do the next right thing along the path to heaven and humble yourself in the sight of God believing with every step that God's got it handled. And even if he didn't, you certainly can't. So humble yourself so that you might be dependent on him who can handle all of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we are dependent on you, whether we admit it or not, whether we recognize it or not, whether we want it to be true or not. We are entirely dependent, like an infant on its mother, entirely dependent for our lives. So God, I, I pray that we wouldn't grow in our dependence, but we would grow in our awareness of our dependence. And, and sometimes, in fact, I would argue often, you use suffering to open our eyes to the fragility and weakness in our own strength. And so, God, uh, I pray that you would do that. Use the, the constant suffering, the constant little hells that we are dealing with, not to harden us, not to try to make us more self-sufficient, but to make us more dependent upon you. May we walk in the way of Christ, choosing to embrace the suffering of the moment for the greater good of your call in the future. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.